Samuel Franklin Cody, born 1867, died 1913, was the first man in Britain to fly a powered aeroplane of his own making at Farnborough, Hampshire, a small town renowned for its part in British aviation. As a pioneer aviator, one would expect his life to be exceedingly dangerous, and Cody's career proved to be an unending struggle against the odds, not only with his embryo aeroplanes, but with the British establishment. For someone as irrepressible, unorthodox and supremely confident as he was, was bound to butt up against the contemporary attitudes of the Edwardian military of the time in both Aldershot and Farnborough. His showman's persona and bluff humour also led the press to take him less seriously than they might have done, and from recognising his amazing courage and practical genius. By any standard, his was an action-packed life. Cody was an American who first came to England in 1890 at 23 years of age. He was one of five children born in the frontier town of Davenport, Ohio. His father, also Samuel Franklin, was a Civil War veteran on the Federal side, although some of Cody's stories have, have him as a Confederate, and his health was much impaired by his service, and he really ended up deserting the family. As a boy, Cody showed himself a natural horseman, but he felt he had to leave home as soon as possible, and he did that by between 12 and 13 years of age, and he became a trail hand, and then conceivably an impossibly young trail boss. He only had the flimsiest education. Cody's idol was Buffalo Bill Cody, William Frederick, whose surname he adopted, and he was a teamster at 12 years of age. Cody's real name was Caldery, and it was a famous family who had come over with the Pilgrim Fathers, but there was no competition because he was going to adopt Buffalo Bill's name. Whatever the skills of both of them, by the late 80s the days of the cowboys were over. The open range was doomed by barbed wire and the railroad. As a consequence, both Buffalo Bill and Samuel Cody decided to go into show business, depicting the lives of such men. Buffalo Bill, with his massive Wild West show, which he brought to England in 1883, and including the cast was Doc Carver, the marksman, Annie Oakley, the great female marksman, and the Indian chief Sitting Bull, along with lots of uh, horses and donkeys and so on. And this object was to give an authentic picture of the West. In contrast, Cody, with his singular shooting and riding act, was on his own. In 1889, Cody had married 18-year-old Maud Lee, who helped him with this act in America and briefly in England before she returned to the United States. She was something of a sharpshooter herself, but was a drug addict and schizophrenic, who, after her return to America, was committed as a long-term patient at Norristown Hospital for the insane. She was actually there for the next 41 years. Unsurprisingly, Cody's act needed a helper, and within a year he appeared on the music halls with a new assistant, Elizabeth Mary Layla King, the estranged wife of a London publican. She was 15 years older than Cody, and she brought a great deal of baggage because she brought four children, Edward 16, Leon 11, Vivian 9, 
and her daughter Lizzie 18. Against the odds, the matronly Leila and the hyperactive Cody made a great theatrical team. All the family joined his cowboy act, and Cody took them over to France to race with horses against the French cyclists. At this time, the French were the greatest cyclists in the world, but Cody usually won, even though he had to take his horses from whatever stable were offered to him. It was in Baal on the 7th of September 1895 that Cody's natural son Frank was born. On their return to England, Cody began to give brilliant exhibitions with a gas-operated automatic pistol. He was always seeking new experiences and, new, uh, and trying to extend his entertainment. With it, he actually drove large nails into wood, and it had a magazine of eight cartridges and, and was gas-operated. Uh, invented by uh, Hugo Borchardt, it was modified by the German George Luger and became the standard sidearm for the German army in the First World War. The family also began to perform sketches of the West, but significantly, in 1897, the semi-literate Cody wrote a drama or melodrama called The Klondike Nugget, featuring breathless action where good triumphed over evil at the very last moment. The Klondike was the Alaskan goldfields and the Chilcot Trail. This had a cast of 13 with 20 extras, horses and mules and donkeys, and the whole family took part in it, and it played to packed houses for five years, earning Cody something like twelve to eighteen hundred pounds a year, and this was apart from the salaries of his other family members, when the average wage was just seventy-five pounds. It was probably the first true Western to feature in Britain. The hero was the Indian Wacko, and Cody often played the villain of Sam Dietz, and he would tell the audience out of the side of his mouth, that his heart wasn't as black as Dietz's. But this was the time of the Boer War, and Cody would set aside Friday evenings in the theatre for shooting competitions, where he paid for the ammunition and targets himself. Not only was he looking at the army in this sense, but his interest in the nugget was fading, and his next objective was to rise into the air. There were balloonists, of course, but Cody's method was by box kite with controls, which he flew during tours with the nugget. Some of his techniques might possibly have been learned from Major Baden-Powell, brother of the chief scout, although Cody attributed it to his Chinese cook on the trail. Cody's kites were large, but his interest was in their man-lifting qualities, both with single kites and a multi-kiting system which went up a cable. You may want to know why this should be. The reason was that Cody was looking to sell his invention to the British Army, because the British Army's balloon units had done very well in the Boer War, and its balloon school was actually in Aldershot. But Cody believed his kites could complement balloons to give 24-hour reconnaissance capability, balloons needing still air and kites wind. He wrote to the War Office and, and met Colonel James Templer at the Aldershot Balloon School. At this time, the Army was concerned with finding a larger site for building their projected airship, and Templer was only mildly interested in Cody's, Cody's ideas. In 1903, Cody, not to be outdone, approached the Royal Navy 
and his kites were used on sea trials. There were obvious difficulties. The deck of a ship is not very large and the superstructure used to baffle the wind and when you come past it, you often were thrown into the sea. But they did well enough for the Navy to ask him what financial terms he would, he would like for his kiting system. He proposed a salary for himself of £1,250 a year, which was perfectly reasonable, but then he said he wanted an initial sum of £25,000 for his kite patents and another 25000 when his engagement ceased. You can understand the enormity of this suggestion when the Cambridge Hospital, the huge Cambridge Hospital at Aldershot, had cost less than that. The Navy rejected his proposal out of hand, but they took some sets of his kites. By 1904, however, Farnborough had been chosen by the Army as the site for its new balloon school and airship shed. Its superintendent, Colonel John Capper, took Cody on as a kiting instructor for three months. Instead of the wage of £1,250 a year, uh, Cody was employed at was a much lower £50 a month, subsequently reduced to 33 Capper was determined to get his pound of flesh. Cody uh, was required to help develop a British airship, although he was allowed to build an aeroplane, because aeroplane building and, and, and flight was another of Capper's ambitions. Capper wasn't content with just taking on Cody. He had another designer, a Lieutenant John Dunn, the son of a general, whom he favoured over Cody. Uh, Dunn's plane was swept wing, unorthodox, and supposed to be immensely stable, whereas Cody's would have great likenesses uh, to the Wright's aircraft, uh, information about which Kappa had given him. Nonetheless, Cody is going forward with his experiments, and he starts with his, his glider kite, which had a 51-foot wingspan, being Cody, and um, it was sent up on the cable for his uh, other kites. Then his power kite, which was tethered and flew inside the airship shed, as he progressed towards his ambition of, of flight. During 1906, he became a member, an official member of staff, but most of his time had to be spent on Kappa's airship, Nolisecundus. This was Britain's first airship, and uh, the proud name, Noli Secundus, never second, was somewhat ironic because it was much smaller than German airships and French airships at the same time. It was 127 feet long, had a capacity of 55,000 cubic feet of hydrogen gas, highly, highly combustible. In 1907, Cody built its substructure, including the steering and propulsion, Cody built the airship. I mean, the balloon was just one thing, but all the rest was, was what mattered. And he was sent by Kappa to Paris to buy a French Antoinette engine, 50-horsepower engine, which was going to cost £550. And this was to power the airship. There was still no air, air engine for his plane. Kappa then surprised Cody by deciding after just three hours' flight that... He would fly in the airship from Farnborough to London and actually go round St Paul's Cathedral. Uh, Cody and Kappa together flew with Cody with the controls, Kappa in immaculate uniform.
but they found when they arrived in London and did go round St Paul's uh, that the wind changed and they just couldn't get back to Farnborough. The engine wasn't powerful enough. And they had to bring down the, bring down the airship and actually deliberately, deliberately haul it. At this, Kappa decided to build an improved airship, giving more time for Cody to build his plane. Although Cody's rival, Dunn, was now due to take his embryo plane for a powered test in the Highlands. Unsurprisingly, Kappa's second airship failed. It was much too heavy. And its last flight occurred on the 25th of August, 1908. The significance for Cody is that now he had the use of an engine for the first time. But even then he couldn't get on with his plane because he had to attend kiting trials for the Royal Navy at Portsmouth. And he went every day and was ducked in the sea, nearly drowned, and left them on the 4th of September 1908. On his return he could finally fit his engine and prepare his plane for flight. The odds were not propitious because at this time Farnborough was pretty unsuitable for flying, unlike the beautiful sands at Kitty Hawk that the Wrights had used, or the flat plains at Le Mans for the French flyers. Uh, Farnborough was, was rough scruff, scrub land, and it had the remains of slit trenches, cattle troughs, and a whole number of scrubby trees. Still, he was going to make his flight and nothing would stop him. So on the 16th of October, 1908, Cody's first flight was without Kappa, who was in France at the time. Cody made a genuine flight in British Army Aircraft 1. Its distance was 440 yards, and it lasted 27 seconds, although he crashed at the end and was slightly injured. He took off smoothly under his own power, which of course was, was much more than the Wrights did because they used a catapult. But then he hit unexpected wind currents and was blown into a copse at, uh, at 35 feet. He somehow overflew it, but one wingtip touched the ground. And then he faced another copse directly ahead, which he just couldn't avoid. He applied the rudder sharply and ploughed into the ground. There was no doubt about Cody's achievement, for thankfully it was commemorated by a press photograph. But BAA-1 was an amazing plane. It was large, as you'd expect with Cody, with a double-decked 54-foot wingspan resting upon a framework upheld by three bicycle wheels. Like the Wright's plane, it had a large forward elevator with additional top and rear rudders. The pilot sat in the middle of the struts and cables behind a steering column with the engine to his front and his petrol tank suspended overhead to fuel the engine by gravity feed. Cody's seat was fully open to the elements, and his lateral vision was hampered by large radiators on both sides. The sang-froid of a pilot in these circumstances can only be imagined. I did say at the beginning that Cody always had adversity, and he really suffered a body blow because when a week after his flight, the Committee of Imperial Defence sitting to consider aerial aviation in Britain, decided to discontinue work on aircraft at Farnborough and dismiss both Cody and Dunn. Obviously it was short-sighted, uh, but they, um, the work under Kappa 
uh, had an amateurish uh, flavour about it. How short-sighted this was, was underlined because during the autumn of that year, Wilbur Wright had given brilliant demonstration of flying in France. And in six months' time, Blériot would fly across the Channel and end British insularity forever. What could Cody do? In 1909, he decided that he had to go it alone. And they allowed him to keep his plane and the loan of the engine. And he hired a shed on Laffin's Plain near Aldershot for £8 a year. Cody's modest hut on Laffin's Plain had overflying rights, but the surrounding farmers preserved the grazing. But Cody's whole future would rely on winning air prizes by his skills. He developed his BAA-1 and installed a slightly more powerful engine in it and moved the chassis section forward. He was now sitting literally in, in mid-air. But in this instance, he was the first British test pilot. He practiced and adapted and progressed, and by August 1909, he was able to take up his first passenger, who would be Colonel Kappa, then his common-law wife, Layla. By September 1909, Cody had a genuine aeroplane, genuine in, with its limitations, and he went to Doncaster's Corporation Air Show, but the weather was terrible, and he was not as skilled as the French flyers there. The most significant act at Doncaster was Cody signing his naturalisation papers to become a British citizen. And the reason for this was not only his patriotism for Britain, but his chance to compete for English aeronautical prizes. So began an amazing four years. In the spring of 1910, Cody built a new aircraft, which he called the Cody II. And it had not only one engine, but two engines. The ambition to build an aircraft with two engines has got to be imagined. Only one propeller, and he used airlongs instead of his earlier wing warping, and an enlarged forward elevator. He was to suffer a series of mishaps. A gust overturned his plane and injured him fairly badly, he then witnessed the death of his great friend Charles Rolls. He was the first uh, to be there when, uh, when the body hit the ground. And most important of all, he just could not synchronise these two engines. It was only when he discarded one engine did his plane begin to fry. His target was now to fly the longest distance around a set circuit by the end of the year. This was the for the so-called Michelin Trophy, the Michelin Trophy was a magnificent one, bronze, with a figure of Pegasus climbing up the side, plus £500 prize. There were many who entered the competition, but in the end he faced two main competitors, outstanding young flyers in Alex Ogilvy and Tommy Sopwith. And both of them were flying Wright's aircraft, which had been built by the English Short Brothers on the Isle of Sheppey. The whole competition was a case of Russian roulette, leaving it as late as possible as the weather deteriorated in the year. On the 22nd of December, this is not early, Cody flew 114 miles round his circuit. He thought it was all over, 
but as late as the 28th of December, Ogilvy threw 139 miles. Then, on the 30th of December, Sopwith flew 150 miles on his third attempt. You wondered what hope could there be for Cody. On a frosty morning on the 31st of December, Cody was up early in the early hours and set off for Farnborough and registered uh, to go round their two-and-a-half-mile circuit with his plane loaded with 25 gallons of petrol. Flying between 100 and 250 feet, after three hours he had completed 49 laps and flown 120 miles. Not far enough yet. It was then that the wind rose and the temperature dropped and he had to fly very low and his intake pipes began icing up. But he coaxed his heavy plane round and round the circuits for no less than 4 hours 47 minutes covering 185 miles until he bounced down with his petrol tank absolutely empty. He had won the Michelin Trophy and he had set up a record for duration and distance. As he landed, he was covered in ice because he was, it was an open plane. And um, they played uh, Here the Conquering Hero Comes, but uh, Cody's beard was absolutely solid. But most important, Cody and his plane are now a force to be reckoned with. So late, he's got to look towards the new year. In 1911, his main object was the Daily Mail's Circuit of Great Britain race for a massive £10,000 prize given by Lord Northcliffe, uh, the owner of the Daily Mail and the Times, for which he built a new aircraft, his Cody 3. Again, it's an orthodox Cody aircraft with shorter wingspan, 40 feet, a green engine up to 80 horsepower, and wing warping instead of the Elions. The requirement was to fly 1,010 miles in 24 hours. Imagine the progress that's been made since the uh, Michelin Trophy. It was an international competition with 19 entrants, and the favourites was, unsurprisingly, two French flyers in monoplanes using French-known rotary engines. The first leg of the race was from Hendon to Edinburgh, with, with compulsory stops on the way, then back to Bristol and Brooklands. Most flyers used monoplanes, unlike Cody's heavy, massive biplane. He set off and was soon following the leaders. And um, the first thing he did was to overstress his engine, and this great plane couldn't give the speed of the others. And the stress and the vibration uh, caused him to have to come down in Yorkshire with a split pipe and a split petrol tank, and he flew down with one hand. Uh, this was this was welded up, and uh, his stepsons uh, followed him in his motor car as a, as a, as a very uh, rough, uh, helpful full system. After setting off again, he had to make an emergency stop near Durham, and when he reached Edinburgh, it was foggy and he was blown out to sea. But he landed and, and um, got extra petrol from the scout camp there. All the, these early flyers regularly lost their way. Uh, the crudeness of their, their maps and, and possible compasses that they were carrying in their pockets. Cody returned via Stirling and, and Paisley to Carlisle, where his plane was absolutely finished. It, was, it needed, the engine was coked up to anything. 
and he decided that he would give an account of his journey so far at Her Majesty's Theatre in Carlisle after the normal performance to raise the money to decoke his engine. That he did, and, and it was decoked in a garage at Penrith. Cody made a number of further stops, including Western Supermare, where he gave another theatrical performance, and took off at 4am from the Sands, watched by four to 5,000 people. In the event, the French Flyers won easily, but the time was extended to 10 days for Cody to complete the race, and he came fourth overall in his all-British aircraft. While he'd captured the interest of the whole nation, and was to win a second Michelin trophy, uh, he was not yet earning enough money to make his way. This, fortunately, was going to change in the next year. This 1912 was Codis Annus Morabilis. Most important, he succeeded in getting the long-overdue uh, patent money for his kites from the treasury. And he was dressed up in the smartest suit and was interrogated by the Chancellor, Lloyd George, assisted by Wedgwood Ben. And they really got nothing out of Cody. They tried to find out whether he'd used the money wisely, but he just said that when he went in the bank account and he had to pay it out, he just got it out. And um, they, they, they uh, somehow accepted this remarkable figure was telling the truth, and they granted him uh, the £4,000 for the patents. This was not everything, because he was entering the most difficult competition of his life, and that was to select the most suitable plane for the Embryo Royal Flying Corps. It was an original way for the Royal Flying Corps to get its plane by a competition, but um, full of full of hazards. And the hazards were with Cody from the very beginning. Uh, before the year started, he used to take up students because they would pay him money to get their flying certificate. And um, one of the students crashed his Cody 3, which he'd earmarked for the, the tests for the plane. He was reduced to his Cody 2, but this, this didn't have an engine. And um, he solved it by buying cheaply an Austro-Daimler engine of 120 horsepower, a massive engine in those days, from a plane which crashed in the circuit of Great Britain. And he repaired it for a song, and it transformed the performance of his Cody 2, and he adapted it for the new monoplane he'd built. Cody's problems, however, were still far from over. On the 5th of April, he overcorrected the controls of his Cody 2 whilst flying with a student. He was very nervous with this student. And he crashed, injuring himself and the student, and destroying his aircraft. So he's written off his Cody 2. He still got his repaired Cody 3 and his monoplane. But another army pilot, Major Harvey Kelly, hits a tree and writes the Cody 3 off. Cody is now reduced to his monoplane, which was going very well, proving extremely fast. But in these early days, engines were not that reliable, and Cody was flying over uh, Laffin's plane when the engine failed, and he had to glide down looking for a landing area. This was nothing unusual. But when just feet from the ground, he felt a terrible impact, and his plane broke up around him. In fact, he'd hit a cow, and uh, although he when told the judge at the inquest that it had committed suicide, he still had to pay £18. 
It would appear that the, the cow was, was confused by the shadow of the plane overhead, and it either ran to it or away from it. The result was, was disastrous. But he got his four-man team together and told them they had to build an aeroplane in three weeks out of the debris of the crashed planes, because his money had not yet come through from the treasury. With so little time, it had to be an orthodox Cody plane, with, of course, his 120-horsepower Daimler engine. Working day and night using carbide lamps in the, his earth-floored hut, they actually succeeded in constructing it, and they flew it to Lark Hill. Most of the others nursed their planes and took them by road, but Cody had no time and had to fly it. One of his helpers on a tricycle tricycled all the way to Lark Hill, there, Cody faced eight tests, mainly flying tests, but also dismantling and reassembling the aircraft. Why they had to dismantle and reassemble the aircraft in those days is, is a mystery. But Cody, the showman, uh, should have had an advantage, and he took one hour, 35 minutes, to, to dismantle and reassemble his aircraft. Uh, others took even less, uh, but um, Cody's was respectable timing. There were eight tests, and Cody didn't win any of them, but against technological, much more advanced competitors, his brilliant piloting and adaptability proved enough to win outright. For example, they had to land in a short distance of ground, and Cody literally solved this by tying a chain on his rear skid. It was uh, adaptable and, and would work, but not, not brilliant engineering. But his engine now gave him the power that he had always sought. Cody's was really didn't even start in competing with the best planes there. The best plane was a B-2 built at the Royal Aircraft Factory by Geoffrey de Havilland. But the judges excluded this because the official support given to it. Cody's wing could be compared to a 501 outsider winning the Grand National. He won the 4,000 first prize and a further thousand for the British winner. But there was absolutely no chance of his plane being generally adopted by the Royal Flying Corps. In the event, they chose the BE-2. This, of course, didn't diminish Cody's achievement, nor the judge's fairness, and he won another Michelin trophy. But for the first time, Cody has money. He had the 4,000 for his kite patents and the 5,000 he'd won on trials. And in 1913, he takes steps to set up Cody and Sons Aerial Navigation Company. But being Cody, he still wanted to compete for prizes, even though he was elderly in pilot's terms. The outstanding object was for crossing the Atlantic. And if we think in 1913, the object crossing the Atlantic was immensely ambitious. Cody planned a two-engine monoplane with no forward elevator, but double-decked and capable of carrying one and a half tons of petrol, for which he ordered from the Austro-Daimler company a 400-horsepower mark of engine. With a crew of three, he hoped to fly from Galway to Gander in 24 hours. The very thought of this uh, means that the progress in these four years was utterly amazing. This wasn't enough for Cody. He entered the Circuit of Great Britain race for its 5,000 prize, which was due to begin in August 1913. For this, 
he built his largest biplane so far. It had to be an orthodox Cody, uh, but he believed it had outstanding stability. And with a 60-foot wingspan, standing no less than 14 feet 6 inches off the ground. Although the plane weighed a ton, Cody still used bamboo for its main longitudinal members. It was powered not by an Austro-Daimler, but by a 100-horsepower green engine, and he endeavoured to make it stronger in every way than any of its predecessors. He also believed that its stability would allow it to be used in ancillary wartime roles, for instance, as an air ambulance, and he designed uh, equipment for it to carry a portable operating table and ancillary equipment with a medical team of three, a doctor, anaesthetist and nurse, for two patients. During thorough tests, uh, one patient nearly made an unscheduled descent when he wasn't strapped in competently enough. But this was not enough for Cody prior to making his sea trials. He was in the habit of taking local people up around Farnborough and Aldershot at five guineas a flight, which was pretty good money. But Cody had, had money now. He didn't need to. He just, he just really loved to sh show off and fly. On the morning of the 7th of August, he took up passenger, uh, a Lieutenant Kayser of the 20th Hussars, and, and was approached by a second passenger, uh, for whom his son, Leon, gave way. And this was the outstanding cricketer and Egyptian civil servant, W.H.B. Evans. After his eight-minute flight, Cody was matching his descent when the plane doubled up and crashed into a group of oak trees at Ball Hill, close to Farnborough Airfield. Both men were killed instantly, and de Havilland, who was used to hearing Cody's open exhaust, uh, said that he listened to it because it was one of the sounds of Aldershot, and it just stopped, and there was an eerie silence. Inevitably, the cause of the crash was, was investigated, uh, but the favoured theory was that Cody was preparing for a stylish manoeuvre that put such strain on a cable that it snapped, causing the wings to fold up. His son, Leon, put the cause down to a rogue propeller. But due to trophy hunters, nothing could be proved. Cody was immensely superstitious, and um, when the two bodies were taken to the Connaught Hospital in Queen's Avenue, it was found that um, his passenger uh, was wearing green socks, something that Cody would never, ever have allowed. Of course, the causes were, were rather more main mundane than that, but... Um, the, the souvenir hunters really had prevented any scientific uh, investigation. Whatever the reasons for the crash, everyone, including the press, belatedly realised what they'd lost. The Times uh, talked of those who possessed twice his education and none of his genius. And I personally see him as a larger-than-life figure who caught the collective imagination if no establishment man. I see him as an unutterably brave, irrepressible, highly industrious, egalitarian, and never constrained by problems. With the age gap between uh, Cody and Layla, uh, they solved it by adjusting both of them, adjusting their ages. He had his own morality, which might be likened to that of a Renaissance prince. But in reality, he was someone who escaped all archetypes. He'd had a very tough background. He was boisterous, a perennial ad adolescent, handsome, 
unlettered but highly intelligent, and a brilliant and colourful raconteur. Above all, I see Cody as a highly gifted horseman, brilliant pilot, and self-appointed champion of aviation. Whatever people's reactions, in Aldershot, General Douglas Hay, uh, the commander of the Aldershot division there, offered him a place uh, in Aldershot's military cemetery, the first civilian to be given the privilege. The Royal Flying Corps took over all the funeral arrangements from the family, and on the 11th of August, a gun carriage drawn by six coal-black horses arrived at Cody's home in Valecroft in Ashvale. The procession was preceded by the band and pipes of the Black Watch, and all the units in Aldershot had representatives uh, at the procession. It was almost a mile long, and the whole of the Royal Flying Corps, 300 strong, marched with the Aeronautical Society in full morning dress. There were over a hundred floral tributes, and the whole way was estimated with crowds of people. It was estimated that 50,000 people lined the route, and a further 50,000 were at the cemetery. He was interred at a high point in the cemetery, where the birds were said to frequently fly. It was a, a funeral for a king or a president. However, all this was soon to be eclipsed by the First World War, although Cody remained a major figure at Farnborough. In life, he'd used an unassuming tree to test the thrust of his engines, and successive generations took pieces of it for luck until it was in a very poor condition. In 1959, air apprentices at Farnborough were given the assignment of casting a perfect replica from aluminium, which they did, and which stands today outside the Kinetic Factory's main building. But in winter, the birds are not fooled, and they're unwilling to get their feet cold, and thus they collectively shun it. At Farnborough, still more has been done for Cody in recent years, including the building of a magnificent replica of his first plane, the erection of a bronze statue to stand near the entrance of the Fast Museum, and the laying of a granite plinth to mark the take-off point of his first flight. Even so, he has, I believe, arguably, still not been given the full national recognition that he so surely deserves. <laughs>